Isaiah chapter 1 is, our, is where we'll start today in our journey through the Scriptures, summarizing the books of the Bible book by book. Today we enter the prophetic books of the Old Testament, and the first one being the prophet Isaiah. Here's the co- key concept as you, as you find that book. God wants to break through to His people in love. God wants to break through to His people. As you're finding Isaiah 1-1, every night on the evening news, we hear of geopolitical events. They're capturing the attention of our world. I'm sure you'll see it on the news this evening. And if you were to look at a map of the kingdoms that Isaiah talks about in his prophecy and, pl- and place it over the map of tonight's newscast, it will be that map. It will be the exact same map. It is a reminder to us that review a little bit about what's going on in in the days that uh, we see Isaiah. There's a timeline on the bottom of your outline today, and you can follow along briefly. In our series, we've seen that at King Solomon's death, old rivalries and resentments surfaced in the nation Israel, and, and the nation split apart in 930 B.C., divided into two kingdoms. In the north, the kingdom called Israel or Samaria. In the south, the kingdom of Judah. Both suffered deterioration. Both had a series of evil kings. In the north, every single king was a worshiper of idols. In the south, at least some uh, sought to follow the one true God. But it was during these times when most of the prophets spoke out. They spoke out against evil. They warned against coming punishment. And today as we enter the prophetic books of the Old Testament, we need to understand that the word prophet comes from the Hebrew word which means mouthpiece or spokesman. It's derived from the Hebrew word that says to announce. And so the word prophet doesn't predominantly mean to predict although we'll see predictions being made through these books. But more often, the prophet is simply announcing the will of the Lord, calling people back to a higher standard of morality and behavior and back from idolatry to the worshiping of the one true God. Now, in the prophets, we we divide the, the books of the prophets into the major prophets and the minor prophets. And the distinction is not in importance, The distinction is in size, the size of the books. So the major prophets are the larger books, which we'll treat first, and the minor prophets, uh, the smaller books. Most of these prophets spoke prior to the exiles that the nation, both Israel and Judah, uh, went into. In the north, they were exiled into Assyria. And the, the prophets that were in the north speaking to the people in the north were the prophets Amos and Hosea. In the south, the kingdom of Judah, Isaiah would, I mean, Assyria would be a problem, but Babylon would actually be the nation that would conquer them. And the prophets that spoke to the south in the south were Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah from the exile. Living in exile in Babylon, two of the prophets spoke back to the nation of, of Judah, and that those were Ezekiel and Daniel, were fearless men. They denounced the sin of their day. They spoke truth to power. They called for justice and mercy. They called people away from idols and back to God. And we begin the section of treating their writings by looking at Isaiah. So who was Isaiah? 
Actually, that's a question of great debate among scholars today. Because of the sweep of his prophecies, the, the, the length of history that his prophecies oversee, and because of the specificity of his prophecies, there are those who teach that there must have been multiple Isaiahs, that it couldn't have been just one man who wrote the book, but a series of people, probably two or three people, who wrote the book of Isaiah. And they come to that conclusion because they can't accept that a man would be able to make accurate predictions of something that would take place 200 years in the future right down to the very name of the king of Persia, Cyrus, who would release the captives. They can't accept that. A timeless and eternal God who speaks through his prophets the words, thus saith the Lord. There is no problem at all to accept that Isaiah is exactly who he said he is. That Isaiah, some of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Isaiah identifies himself plainly right there, and he shows us the kings under which he served. He was a prophet from approximately 740 B.C. to 690 B.C., a span of about 50 years. And it tells us that when Isaiah was growing up, the history shows us when Isaiah was growing up as a boy, he experienced some of the best times of Israel. It was a time of peace. The world powers were not paying attention to uh, Israel in that day, in his youth. But when Tiglath-Pileser III came to the throne in Assyria in 745 B.C., everything changed because he took the armies of Assyria westward, moving towards the Mediterranean. And as they started to expand westward and then down the coasts of the Mediterranean, the northern kingdom would fall first in 722 B.C., mobilized against the Assyrian aggression as they came through the northern reaches of, of the Holy Land. And in that exact same time, King Hezekiah was king in Jerusalem. And so he thought it good to go on the side of the Egyptians. He refused to pay tribute to Assyria. But that was a bad move. Because in 701 B.C., Sennacherib, now running the Assyrian army, brings the Assyrian and they conquer almost every city in the south except for Jerusalem itself. And in a powerful display of the power of prayer, Hezekiah pleads with God to spare Jerusalem against the advance of the Assyrian army. It's recorded in Isaiah 37 and 2 Kings 19. And God answers that prayer. And in one night, he sends uh, the angel of the Lord to the camp of the Assyrian army that are surrounding Jerusalem, and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers die overnight. The Assyrian army is devastated. They return to Nineveh. But little does anyone know that while all of this is happening, there is another kingdom that is rising in power. Not yet on the radar screen, but Babylon would soon become the dominant world power. It would conquer Assyria. It would inherit all of those Jewish captives that Assyria had taken away. And ultimately, it too would mobilize westward and destroy Jerusalem 150 years after Isaiah lived. Now, I outline all of this because Isaiah prophesied it all. 
And Isaiah, in the scope of his prophecy, reaches from where he starts in 740 B.C. through the events of the fall of both kingdoms, north and south, through the events of the fall of Assyria, the rise of Babylon, the fall of Babylon, the rise of Persia, and through the life of Christ, the Messiah that he sees all the way to the new heavens and the new earth in eternity future. This is a grand, sweeping book of prophecy. Now, the simplest way to outline Isaiah is to divide it in half. The first segments, the first half, uh, chapters 1 through 39, are words of condemnation of the nation in which he lives with words of comfort sprinkled in. From chapters 40 to 66 are words of comfort for the future nation Israel and peoples of the world with words of warning sprinkled in. So let's look at the first section and the the charges that are laid out to the nation of Israel in the way that they have strayed. And he gives it in a a word picture in chapter 5. So let's go there. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. It's called the Song of the Vineyard. And here Isaiah is making the case for why God is mad at Israel. Here's what he writes. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower and cut out the wine, uh, cut out the wine press as well. He looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad fruit? Here, Isaiah pictures the Lord as the one who has a choice vineyard, which is the nation. He's given every advantage to his people. He's invested time and effort, and he expected good results. But instead of that, all he got was wild grapes. And seeing that, here's how he will respond. Verse 5, Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there. Of Isaiah, he makes the case for why God is going to punish his people. Then in chapter 6, he gives us a flashback of his initial call to serve the Lord as a prophet. So look at chapter 6, verse 1. That King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then go over to verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, says to the Lord, I want to be part of what you're doing. I want to be the one who speaks your perspective of the world to those who will listen. I want to connect with the one true God. And so that's a, 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 a telling of his call. And by the time we get to chapter 7, we see Isaiah functioning in that call. Now he's made the case for why destruction is coming. He makes, makes the case in chapter 6 for his, his unique call to be a prophet. And in chapter 7, he functions as a prophet in a moment where King Ahaz in Judah is in trouble. King Ahaz is afraid, but Isaiah comes to him with a comforting message. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 4. It says, Say to him, Be careful. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. 
You see, Isaiah's message to King Ahaz is relax. God has got this. Don't worry. These people that you're so afraid of are burnt out old sticks with no more flame in them. God will take care of you. However, you must rely on him and not on your plan. But Ahaz is the kind of a guy who always feels he has a better idea. Isaiah says, listen, to make sure that God is on your side, ask him for a sign. He'll give you a sign that demonstrates that he's got this situation well in hand. And Ahaz puts on an air of pomposity, and he says, no, I will not test the Lord my God. He wants Isaiah to be impressed with his spirituality, when in reality, he's just wanting to follow his own plan. Well, Isaiah turns to Ahaz, and he says, in so many words, then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now the sign is this. It comes in three stages. The sign comes as good news and then bad news and then great news. The good news is this. In the short run, things will work out for you, Ahaz. In the time it takes for a young girl to get married, to have a baby, and for that baby to grow up to be old enough to tell right from wrong, before that actually happens, the two nations that are coming against you will be destroyed. And exactly 13 years later, Syria and the northern kingdom are invaded and defeated by Assyria. But that leads you to the bad news. Because the nation that destroys your enemies is your greater enemy. Ahaz, you see, at the time was secretly negotiating with Assyria. Come to our aid. Come to our help. And all that served to do was to get them on the map. Chapter 1 where he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah's conversation with this evil king Ahaz gives us a glimpse into God's plan and God's control over all of history. But Isaiah is not only gloom and doom. If you go over a couple chapters to chapter 9, we see great news from the prophet Isaiah. He speaks in chapter 9, verse 2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Go over to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He sees the coming of the Messiah. I want you to see that the technique that he uses in verse 2, because this will come up again and again as you read the prophets, and he's looking forward to a future event, but he's speaking about it in the past tense. Do you see that in verse 2? It's written in the past tense. We call that the prophetic past. And this will come up a lot as you read the prophets. And the reason is because the prophets are looking into the future, but they want to express that future with such certainty. This is definitely going to happen that they put it in the past tense. In their minds, it's already happened. But the people walking, seeing a great light has not yet happened in the time of Isaiah. He's sure it's coming. He tells them that the captivity that they will face will end. And in the long term, the Messiah will come and he will be able to bless them and they will find peace in him. Why? Because he is the Prince of Peace. 
in his authority only will you find ultimate peace. Well, in the next few chapters, chapter 13 through 23, we have what I'll call, and I'm just going to skip over this section, but we have what I'll call the roll call of judgment against the nations. Chapter after chapter we see in this section where Isaiah is predicting doom against Babylon and then Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Syria, Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, and then the cities of Jerusalem and Tyre are included as well. And by the time we get to chapter 36, let's go there, his focus returns to Judah and Jerusalem. Chapter 36, verse 1. Now, in chapter 36, verse 1, the bad news section of the sign that he spoke to Ahaz is just about to take place. Chapter 36, 1 says this, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. The year is 701 B.C. And Assyria is continuing on in their aggression in the Holy Land. And they have burned through city after city after city. The only one left with its walls intact is Jerusalem. King Hezekiah is now on the throne. And facing this threat, he does not resort to the pride of his father Ahaz, but rather he shows us the power of prayer. He humbles himself and puts on sackcloth and ashes on his head, and he goes in and he prays to God. In, verse 30, in chapter 37, the prayer is recorded, and he prays, Lord, all of these nations that Assyria is defeating, they all worship gods of stone and wood, but you are the one true God, and we are your people, and for your name's sake, O Lord, spare your people. Demonstrate to the world that you truly are the God of uh, God on high. For your name's sake, do it. It's recorded in chapter 37, verse 17. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to all these people in their lands. They have thrown their gods into fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And by chapter 39, oh, so, so, that's, so in that situation, the result is that God answers that prayer. We spoke of it earlier. And the angel of the Lord visits the camp of the Assyrian army as they are camping all around Jerusalem, laying siege to the city. 185,000 soldiers die overnight. And the, and the remainder of the camp wakes up in the morning. They see the dead bodies and they flee back to Assyria. But by chapter 39, we see the next world power come into focus, and that is Babylon. And God answers his prayer, and the, 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 idea, the news that King Hezekiah of Jerusalem is sick and it is well again spreads throughout the region. And a place that nobody has heard of called Babylon sends a delegation to Hezekiah to congratulate him on getting well and to bring him respect and gifts and so forth. And Hezekiah is so flattered by the fact that this faraway place would send him a delegation and, 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 and uh, uh, flatter him and so forth that in his puffed-up pride, he says to the delegation, would you like to take a tour of my palace? Them all the wealth of the temple and the palace. 
And in that moment, he puts Jerusalem on the radar for Babylon. Isaiah confronts him. They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then, Hezekiah, uh, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. So in the closing moments of this first half of the book of Isaiah, we see King Hezekiah give us at one hand a great example of the power of prayer, but on the other hand, an example of pride. And we must learn from both. Chapter 40 begins the second portion of the book of Isaiah. And here the emphasis is on speaking comfort to the people. In fact, look at chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. The tone of the second portion is mostly comfort because Isaiah is now, uh, in the first section of the book, he's been speaking about issues that he's facing in his lifetime. But in the second section, he's more looking down the corridors of time, specifically looking at the events 150 years after his death when the children of Judah will be in captivity. And he wants to assure them that the eternal God will watch over them. For Isaiah, it's important to understand that God is an eternal being. The God of eternity means that he exists outside the passing of time, but can intervene in time when he chooses. God's eternity is one of the most fascinating aspects about our God. It means he is a witness to all of time, all the time. He lives in what theologians call the eternal now. He sees everything equally vividly from all of history. Or what will you have for dinner three Tuesdays in the future? God sees it all. No wonder in Isaiah 46 we read, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And that last sentence brings another facet of God's eternity to bear. He can enter time and do what he pleases. He is able to act, and his character doesn't change, and his plans never change. And the plan that he has is to bless his people so that through his people, the blessing for all peoples may come, the Savior of mankind. Isaiah assures them that even though they will suffer, one day they will be rescued. In the middle of the verse, it says, Who says of Jerusalem it shall be inhabited? Of the tower, towns of Judah they shall be built. Of the ruins I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your streams? Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? He will say of Jerusalem, Let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. And 200 years after those words, King Cyrus of Persia did just that. Rescue is outlined for us. He looks down not 200 years, but 700 years. And in chapter 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Beyond the release of the Jews from their captivity, there is a greater release from a greater rescuer. And the release will come from Jesus himself. Jesus is the one he sees who came meekly, who was beaten and crucified in our place. And Jesus understood when he walked the face of the earth that the messianic prophets, uh, prophecies contained in Isaiah were about him. He knew that. And so there was a day, a scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue of his hometown. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery for the sight of the blind, to to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why? This is a messianic prophecy. The Messiah is pictured, and Jesus said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine what that was like for a Jew? 700 years. Can you imagine the gasps going on in that room? This one says it is all about him. His Messiah would be a savior for not only his people, but for all people. Over and over again in the second half of this book, we hear the words, to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. He had total confidence that God would fulfill his mission because he does as he pleases. And then he sees the very end of time. I want to read to you Isaiah 65. The book is almost over. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. In his lifetime, Isaiah often lacked basic respect from people. And finally, he was killed for his faithfulness. But in the way that God tallies greatness, Isaiah is a giant. For God tallies greatness this way. When you hear his call, you respond. 